Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing you the most topical energy matters in an informal setting. I'm Richard Swarrison and joining me today is Richard Manson, a Senior Analyst at NG Aspects. Welcome Richard. Thank you, great to be here. Uh, pleasure to have you. We want to talk a little bit about the, the global macroeconomic environment and what it means for, for, for energy. Um, if I can start by saying I think... The only thing that's certain really is uncertainty. Would that be fair? And uh, so you'd say we could live in uncertain times. I think that's absolutely right. Uncertainty just seems to predominate, whether it's across politics, trade, uh, or the economy itself. There's so much mixture and confusion in uh, what's coming out of political capitals, what's coming out in data releases. And I think that for businesses, Uh, in particular, is just prompting them to be cautious about investment, to think about where they can defer critical decisions Mm. or how to prepare for downside scenarios. Are we pointing towards a global slowdown rather than a recession? And what what are the implications here for for our very sort of globalised energy markets? Well, we've just had the IMF release their October update and they have downgraded their forecasts uh, for GDP growth and they've pointed to a synchronised slowdown. And I think that's a a good way to describe it. Mm. What we're seeing is across the world, a weakening of economic activity. Some regions are going into recession. I don't think we're looking at the kind of severity of a decade ago in the financial crisis, but what we aren't seeing is any regions where they're really powering ahead Mm. and providing that offsetting support as was maybe the case a few years back with the US economy or with Asia when Europe was struggling earlier in the decade. Mm. So it's definitely a slowdown for parts of the world and probably Europe's one of those parts. It is, we're heading into recessionary territory. Does that then mean a slowdown in energy demand, a slowdown in industrial activity? What, what are your, what's your outlook here? What your, what's your thinking? On a global basis, we think it means slowing demand growth. Yeah. We still think in absolute terms across oil markets, across natural gas markets, Uh, And across primary energy, there is growth. And that's kind of inevitable because you have population expanding, you have rising middle classes in Asia particularly. Um, But in the advanced economy, so here in Europe and elsewhere, that economic slowdown does translate into outright declines Mm -hmm. in oil demand, uh, probably uh, certainly some weakness in natural gas demand and electricity demand, Mm. led by the industrial, the manufacturing sectors. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know, reducing output, etc. So what, in terms of numbers, what could you say? Could you say in any sort of percentage uh, numbers? We're here at this, uh, in a a hotel reception, (laughs) and it's a little bit, uh, the background noise, so I hope that's not putting you off, Richard. Not Um, at all, live from a Montel event, the best place to be. Um, So, we certainly, I mean, we think that European oil demand probably falls by about 150,000 barrels a day this year. We think uh, it's likely to see something similar in mm. 2020. Around the world as a whole, we think global oil demand still rises by about uh, 0.8 million barrels a day this year, about a million barrels a day next year. That's really heavily driven by emerging economies. Mm. On the natural gas side, we're seeing China uh, as the absolute critical source of support for the global LNG market. But even there, the growth that we saw in LNG demand in 2018, it's slowing materially in 2019. Mm. Um, underlying gas demand is still growing healthily. Some of that's being met by domestic production, some of it by pipeline import. Mm. And what's left for LNG is probably more like 9 million tonnes, mm. which is much slower than we saw last year. So this is 
maybe exacerbating a, a, a glut or an oversupply of gas into Europe, especially then. Yeah, that's right. So Europe still acts and becomes the, the sink mm. for LNG. And we've seen uh, TTF and uh, LNG prices very closely interconnected, mm. um, but pushing each other downwards over the summer. Mm. Uh, as we get into the winter, we do see uh, Asian LNG prices a little bit stronger, assuming winter demand, but we've got Europe coming into winter with very high natural gas stocks. Mm. It's got some winter risks, in particular, whether Russia-Ukraine negotiations about, a pipe, uh, about transit routes mm. break down. But if that doesn't materialise, and we do think there'll be some kind of resolution, then uh, you'd need a very, very cold winter to really clear those stocks. If mm. we exit this winter with still reasonably high levels of European and global gas storage, you're looking at very, very weak pricing in the summer and you're trying to find mechanisms to handle that oversupply mm. because it's not all being done on the demand side. Sure. I mean, that was going to be my next question really about the Ukraine-Russia gas talks. I mean, how do you see that panning out? Because that's holding up uh, the winter and, and quarterly prices quite substantially. There's quite a, a large spread with, with the spot uh, which has been driven down quite quite majorly uh, over the summer and into into the start of the autumn. Absolutely. And I think we aren't seeing much in the way of uh, urgency, perhaps for, particularly from the Russian side. We've got uh, relatively long gaps between the negotiating rounds. I think the last negotiating round was reportedly only lasted about 45 minutes. So it doesn't mm. suggest they're yet feeling mm. that proximity of the deadline. We do think... Um, that there will be some kind of resolution. I think Gazprom is still aware of the downside or the risks in terms of its reputation with European buyers if it's unable to mm. find any kind of settlement. But of course, it does have uh, route, alternative routes and it can redirect a lot of that gas, which will mean more localised challenges. But in overall volume terms, it could make up a lot. Mm. But I think uh, if the market is pinning its hopes on a prolonged breakdown of Ukraine transit flows, uh, that's a thin amount of support to be building uh, winter pricing on. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you would expect a deal by the, we, end, of, by the end of the year? More likely some kind of at least temp interim resolution uh, in advance of 1st of January, but even if there's some disruption, I'd still expect to see uh, this being resolved sooner rather than later, mm. or at least a workaround found. If we can, we're, we're here in London. Uh, today we heard some major breakthrough in, in, in Brexit that a deal could be imminent. How do you expect this to pan out? I mean, uh, when we go on air, when we go live, uh, we may be out of date very quickly, <laughs> um, but uh, Parliament is due to, 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 to discuss and vote on this deal on, on, on Saturday. Saturday. Yeah. So how, how, so how do you see this panning out? So as you say, events can move very quickly, but what we're seeing, I think, is uh, the Europeans having said there will be no reopening of the withdrawal agreement. Uh, they have acceded. There is some kind of uh, compromise when it comes to replacing the Irish backstop with what feels like more of a fudge. So both sides have given some concession. Mm. What's going to be critical now is the British parliamentary arithmetic. Boris Johnson uh, has lost a number of his own MPs. He's lost his majority. He's lost his first six parliamentary votes. You'd argue all of that doesn't stack up very positively. And yet he has perhaps done more than Theresa May managed to do to, for instance, keep the DUP on side. Uh, he has better relationships with Brexit rebels. And I think there is even a concern amongst some Labour backbenchers who represent Leave constituencies mm. of being caught on the wrong side of mm. this issue 
if there is going to be an election shortly after a Brexit vote or shortly after another extension, because I think inevitably we need now a new election to resolve and to bring some uh, workable government in, mm. maybe Boris can uh, push this across the line. Mm. I think it's going to be very tight. Mm. I think the uh, the detail. Uh, MPs are going to want to see the legal text, which has just emerged as we're recording. Mm. I think um, there's going to be some frantic negotiations, mm. but perhaps uh, he has a better he has better chance at least than Theresa May. But he's staked an awful lot on this. Mm. If he can't get this vote through, then he's going to have to break his pledge not to extend. That's going to be very damaging for him. He's almost certainly going to have to do an election before Brexit occurs. Mm. And that is not going to be a comfortable position. So still a lot is up and uncertain. Mm. A resolution, a deal that does get approved by whatever majority in Parliament would be really positive for Mm. UK and European economic sentiment. But I think what we'd see is once the dust settles, Mm. a recognition that there are plenty of other challenges uh, for Europe beyond Brexit. Uh, And even if Brexit's resolved, those other challenges remain. Look at the health of the German economy, look at uh, ongoing trade disputes with the US uh, in the Mm. car We'll come to that later. But um, but sticking with Brexit, what is the impact here on energy and energy markets? If if there is a deal, if Parliament does decide it it, it likes the detail or you get the Labour rebels or the Leave the MPs from the Leave constituencies that vote for the deal so that it goes through. What happens then? What are the ramifications for energy markets, especially in Europe? So for us, the biggest implication has always been around European emissions markets, the ETS. Mm. Uh, A no-deal exit would have a very bearish effect on those markets. And we've seen a lot of the price volatility in those ETS prices and EUA prices directly Mm. related to Brexit headlines. This is all about whether UK installations are withdrawn, whether they're reselling their holdings into a market in short order, or whether they at least participate in a structured Mm. transition period and exit. So Mm. if we have a deal, uh, it's more positive for EUA prices. If we have no deal, uh, then it's pretty bearish for EUA prices. Broadening out, most physical energy flows looked relatively protected, whether we have a deal or a no deal. Mm. I think one area that has been highlighted, this came out in the Operation Yellowhammer, so Mm. the UK government's assessment of no deal risks, Mm. was UK refinery competitiveness. Mm. Because the UK has said it would not impose tariffs, then imports of refined products coming into the UK would be tariff free. Mm. But UK refiners trying to export to Europe would be facing uh, the equivalent of WTO or third country rules. Mm. And that means several percentage points of tariffs. So Mm. that was going to be a competitive hit, Mm. but probably not a crippling blow Mm. for most UK refiners. Mm. But actual physical infrastructure and flows, natural gas, oil, electricity, we never saw high risks. Uh, Because those are so critical, we always recognise that there was a lot of preparatory work and a lot of commitments made on both sides Mm. to keep those routes open, particularly, of course, Ireland and its interdependence on the UK grid. So business as usual for those flows, those physical flows of power and gas. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yes. How about the environmental credentials of, of the UK? Do you see that being watered down at all through, through Brexit? It's a really good question. I think one of the uh, consequences of so much focus being on the, the Westminster drama of whether we get this deal across the line or not mm. is very, very little debate so far about what the UK is going to do with this hard-won freedom. Mm. How are we going to change our regulations? How are we going to improve the competitiveness of 
the uh, the UK economy and UK businesses. Some listeners might remember earlier mm. promises that the UK was going to have all of these wonderful free trade agreements lined up to sign the day after Brexit. <laughs> well. I think we've got a, a heads of terms with South Korea. We've got a few very small countries, but we're mm. kind of lacking that, mm. that big sense. So there is a vision uh, amongst particularly conservative lawmakers and pro-Brexit uh, that we will become a Singapore-type, mm. low-regulation, uh, free-trading economy. But I think that is quite at odds with a lot of the public movement towards mm high regulatory standards, protections for both workers and increasingly for the environment. Mm. And now, of course, the increasingly active uh, political movement and campaign around climate change. So there'll mm. be, I think, a lot of resistance to watering down environmental protections, watering down uh, commitments around workers' rights. And yet, those are perhaps the, the elements which some Brexit supporters believe are holding the UK economy back or mm. making our businesses less competitive. Fascinating stuff. I mean, we'll, we'll see how this all pans out, of course, or how this develops. Um, how do you, I mean, moving maybe a little bit more globally now, over the past, well, past month, really, but over the past uh, few days, we've seen oil prices being moving both up and down on, firstly, on maybe on, on hopes that uh, US-China trade deal was imminent and then once doubt started to emerge they fell back a bit what is your assessment now of the negotiations and the, and the ongoing trade war here between the US and China well, absolutely I mean I think just to start with oil prices I think they're caught uh, by th in, in the hold of three factors one is a concern about the global economy and particularly uh, US-China trade war the second is about the potential uh, for a change of policy on Iran sanctions which could bring a lot of Iranian oil that's currently unavailable back very quickly. Mm. And the third is changing attitudes towards US shale production. Mm. It's been a huge source of growth and there's now worries whether or not uh, that's going to be able to continue. Something we think and have been highlighting for some time is a real mm. slowdown. But if we hone in on that US-China trade, we've seen the US uh, talking about a phase one agreement. Mm. Now this is a more limited deal that they're proposing, which would only cover some of the issues that are at odds between US and China. So it would put a halt on tariff increases. It would see the Chinese uh, commit to, to buying some more agriculture and some more energy products. And it would create a window perhaps for some longer negotiations on the more difficult issues. Mm. But I think we're a long way from any resolution on those bigger issues, which are around technology. Mm. Uh, the US has put restrictions on a whole range of key Chinese technology firms. It's about intellectual property protections. Mm. Um, and it's really increasingly about the rivalry between the US and China in the global economy mm. and, in, and even in the global political space. China is on the rise. The US, not just the Republicans and the Trump administration, but US politicians of all colors are seeing China as a threat mm. and seeing this as really a strategic battle that's going to define the next 20 or 30 years. It's a very public uh, battleground between two economic superpowers. I mean, what does that mean, for example, for, for LNG flows or, you know, because obviously the US is a big producer of LNG as well. I mean, how, how does that fit in? It does. And I think we absolutely can't rule out uh, both sides seeing opportunities for transactional arrangements. This phase one agreement or deal is probably one example. We've seen previous cases where China has uh, committed to, bar to increase LNG purchases. It might be crude oil, it might be LNG. These, I think, are... Uh, 
totally possible in tandem with this big structural conflict that's going to be very, very hard to resolve. Because mm. for both the US and China, they want to limit the downside and the damage mm. this does to their economies. So as I mentioned earlier, Chinese LNG demand growth is slowing. It's still increasing and it's still going to be the biggest source of new demand this year, but not needing to find quite as much. And in a very oversupplied market, it's not going to be too concerned about having tariffs on US LNG and about the fact that this means China needs to go to other uh, sources and there's a reshuffling mm. of LNG cargoes because there's plenty of LNG around, because there's a perception there's plenty of crude around, even though mm. in fact market fundamentals are quite tight. Mm. Uh, that means I think that China does feel it can offer concessions, it can offer tactical promises when it comes to purchases, mm. but it can also afford to play hardball mm. when it wants to and cut off or slow flows of US energy products into China, even if that means Chinese buyers are paying a little bit more to mm. go for the alternatives. Mm. At, at core of this, as you mentioned, is the, the, the tariffs or the restrictions on technology firms, Chinese technology firms. Do you see that easing at all or, you know, or, or the US rolling back some of those, some of those uh, restrictions there? I think that uh, President Trump has, has signaled some willingness on, for instance, Huawei, but there are a lot of advisors within his administration mm. who are more concerned about technology and about the role that Chinese firms are starting to play in things like 5G networks, mm. as well as probably in intellectual property theft, than in fact they are about the tariffs and the balance of trade. So mm. I think a, a war that began about trade mm. has evolved and is much more now about technology and about the structural underpinnings mm. of the economy. And so whilst you might see some tactical concessions and easing to get these limited deals across the line because neither side wants to do too much short-term damage to their economy, mm. when it comes to the big fundamental issues, neither side's going to be ready to uh, give a lot of ground or give a lot of concessions. And that's why it's very hard to see some kind of comprehensive deal mm. emerging that would put these tensions to rest. There's an election blooming in, in uh, America uh, next year. I mean, it could be an eight-year Trump term. It could be a new president. Do you see if there is a new president, a, a Democratic uh, candidate, an ease-off in the, in the trade war issues here? Or do you think they could still be hardballed on both, on, on, on from the Americans? It's a really good question because I think um, clearly this trade war and the way that it's being fought is wrapped up in Trump's personal style and his personal policy focus. And yet, when you look at uh, across the aisle in mm. Washington, you see real concerns about China and about the threat that it poses to the US economy, to US workers. And many Democrats are, if anything, cheering on mm. this tough stance on China, mm. pushing for measures on various issues, maybe more framed around human rights issues uh, and the suppression of minorities in China, maybe more framed about Hong Kong protests, maybe more framed around workers and mm. uh, standards mm. than outright trade. But I think there are a lot of these concerns. A new democratic president, if we see a change, may well adopt a different tactical approach. But I don't think we're going to see a fundamental easing of tensions because I think what we've now done is accelerated uh, this confrontation between the rising Chinese economy and the dominant US economy. And this is going to have to be resolved. You might be able to defer 
and slow the pace of that process somewhat mm. but i don't think you can halt it entirely until we reach some kind of new equilibrium fascinating stuff i mean there's a there's a lot to keep track of here what on on, on, the, on the global scale so what what would you say over the coming sort of year are the main pointers to look out for apart from um, trump's twitter twitter feed yeah. <laughs> well i think we are going to have to watch the u.s election clearly there's going to be an awful lot of coverage and noise firstly from the democratic primaries we've also now got the impeachment battle uh, that's going to rumble on in the background and then we're going to get into the election proper i think it's going to be a very ugly campaign i think it's going to potentially be quite a close one right towards the end and so we're going to have to keep an eye on that but it's easy to get lost in the detail i think the second thing we'll be looking at what are the other key threats and vulnerabilities to the global economy. We've definitely seen a big slowdown in manufacturing, industrial activity. It's synchronized slowdown, as the IMF says. So there's no one region that's going to pull us out of uh, this deceleration. But I think what's critical now is to watch consumer confidence indicators. So far, they've held up much better. We've got low unemployment. We've still got reasonably strong consumer spending in most regions. If those numbers start to shift, And if we see a contagion from the manufacturing weakness into the services side of the economy, Mm. then that's definitely a concern. Mm. And I think here in Europe, clearly, let's see what happens with Brexit. Let's see what happens with the parliamentary vote on the 31st October. But then the Europeans have a big agenda. They're launching the new European Parliament, the new cycle. Uh, You've got Ursula von der Leyen, who's got big ambitions in terms of the environmental Uh, green agenda the first 100 days. You've also got Germany and a big political transition that they're trying to look at in a slowing economy. You've got a Macron presidency that I think uh, has been trying to really take advantage of this period to establish and strengthen a presence across Europe and beyond. That could continue. Mm. Uh, He could gain momentum or he could stumble along the way. Mm. And so I think how European politics unfolds not just Brexit but once we get beyond Brexit is going to be really critical because unless it can provide some more confidence and clarity for European businesses and for European consumers we may be one of the regions that slows down the most Mm. even if other parts of the world manage to maintain some momentum. Richard thank you very much for joining the Montel Weekly podcast the fascinating fascinating overview of the the the, the global macro um, factors that we need to keep and keep a close watch on in the in the coming weeks months years even so thank you my pleasure listeners you can uh, follow all the latest news on montelnews.com and you can follow us on twitter and linkedin and subscribe to the podcast on spotify and apple podcasts thank you very much for listening goodbye